0: From Brock Media, this is Never Told. I'm the producer, Nicole Davis. Each week, we'll be sharing an original story from a different writer, told in their own voice. This week, we're pleased to present In the Moon, written and performed by Esther Smith. Esther is a BAFTA-nominated British actor and writer, who currently stars opposite Rafe Spall in Trying. Seasons 1 to 3 are currently streaming worldwide on Apple TV+, and the fourth is due later this year. Esther is also well known for her recurring role of Rachel in the BBC3 British sitcom Cuckoo. Other television credits include BAFTA-nominated Black Mirror, UNCLE, Defending the Guilty, Skins and Misfits. In 2015, Esther co-wrote and starred in a comedy short film Elephant with Nick Helm. Her episode formed part of a comedy collection Funny Valentine's exclusive to BBC iPlayer and it was subsequently nominated for a BAFTA for Best British Short Film. I'll be back towards the end to chat with Esther about formulating and finding the beating heart of her story but for now, here she is reading In The Moon. The
1: shopkeeper told me she put her dad in the moon and it made me want to cry. I'm in a yoga class, late as usual, and I promise myself, again, that next time I'll be 10 minutes early to be calm and smug. Not late and already sweating. I find the only spot left at the back of the class, gestured to me by the disapproving yoga teacher, which I feel isn't very yogic of them. And anyway, that spot would have been my choice had I been late or not. Hiding away in the corner, not near any mirrors or the anti-late teacher at the front – I am safe at the back with the other hiders and perhaps of the fellow late, but not as late as me, commas. The room is dimly lit when I enter as the class has already begun and I try to enrol my mat silently, but it flaps into the zen like a disgruntled swan. Sorry, I whisper to whoever I might need to apologise to. The teacher gives her second unyogic stare of the class as glitter spills off of my mat from a party I had at the weekend where I wanted to show off my pincer at 3am. A A yoga pose I definitely cannot do, but maybe could do after five tequila shots. We'll never know. I settle in, take off my thick non-matching socks and join the room in closing my eyes to meditate for a moment and ground myself into the present and grow a root to the centre of the earth with nowhere to be except right here. Although right now I seem to have everywhere to be, but the excuse of self-care has been my best procrastination tool to date. I'm told to steady my breath and breathe in for a count of seven, hold for a count of four and breathe out for a count of eleven. I begin. But my mind quickly wanders into a daydream of tax returns, projects to finish, projects to start, furniture to buy, outfits to wear, mum's birthday, a birthday card I need to buy for Mum's birthday, a birthday card I need to send for Mum's birthday, and if I leave it too late again, I'll miss the post again, and I'll be forced to send a moon pig again, and a bouquet of shit flowers from a shit last minute online florist, but somewhere that delivers to the West Midlands at short notice on a Saturday. Oh lord, why am I so incredibly shit? And breathe out for eleven. 10, 9, 8. I try to focus my whippeting mind on the overly incensed dream and the gong bath music that is pleasingly absorbing the particles of the air vibrating into my back. I keep an eye open to see how we're all doing, to see what calm might look like, and it looks like a sea of still people breathing in waves. I feel like a clumsy piece of plastic scrunched up and battering against the water and the rock, completely out of sync and out of place. I try to focus on the plonking and occasional yawning gong sounds. It's quite nice, actually. I wonder if I could shazam it. Then I could practice this at home for when we next do it. Although... I know that any hint of movement off the mat would make me the worst person in the whole entire world, according to the yoga teacher, particularly from this latest of latecomers, so i just make a mental note to Google yoga floaty gongi music later. I begin to picture India, or at least what I think India would look like, having never been, and I realise it must be because I had an Indian last night, yes, a chicken dansak. And it crosses my mind, if I'm such a fan of the food, why have I never been to the place? I should really go to the place i should really go to india and experience a state of zen where i think yoga began maybe i should go for a week retreat in india although india's quite far so i should probably make it a couple of weeks or a month yes a month would do Imagine what I'd be like if I went to India on a retreat for a month. I'd never be late for a yoga class ever again. I'd probably nail late night pincers with or without alcohol. In fact, I'd probably be teetotal. So I'd at least have a memory of things, which means I'd probably make better, wiser decisions like buying better birthday presents for my mom, better on time, better birthday presents or just general, better, clearer life choices and be better with my heart and how I use it and with what it means to be a human, a messy human. I'd know exactly. Exactly what to say and exactly what to do and life would just be a less foggy, less muddled experience and time wouldn't feel so desperate and crooked and Breathe out for 11, 10, nine, eight It's time to open our eyes and move from the piece of the floor and onto all fours into a position they call cat cow. Now I don't know what makes up the cat or what makes up the cow, but it basically involves undulating your spine into curves, making your back smile, then frown and gently rippling like a river. I never know which way I'm supposed to breathe, whether the cat means breathe in or the cow means breathe in, there's no way of knowing as both animals in real life both breathe in and therefore both breathe out so I'm at a bit of a loss really and actually I'm, I'm a tiny bit angry about it so I just, I generally just move up and down and over inhale. I take in the biggest gulp of air to start as if diving into water, and the lights in the room become gradually uncomfortably brighter, making the painted white bricks glare, and my spine smiles its way into a dip as my throat shines forward, lifting my head to the ceiling. When in the corner, right at the very front of the room, I catch a glimpse of a back and a shape and a head of hair. That I know so well that the gulp of breath I've taken in goes further and further back into the instant nothingness of my body that doesn't seem to be occupying any space and yet occupying all of it at the same time like one big invisible beacon. I am numb and yet I can feel everything. Everything. I can't seem to breathe out. I am watching you like a hawk. Waiting for a glimpse of a profile of a nose, a clear shape of a nose that I know so well that would be so identifiably yours. That Roman nose. But the angle you're at is just annoying and... There's a frustratingly bouffant-haired, ponytailed lady in my line of sight who seems to be whipping her hair back and forth in quite a severe way like she's on a bucking bronco. My blood feels as though it's both draining fast down into the fictional root of the earth that I'm impossibly connected to or that it's pulsating through any of all the parts that make up me. I want to cry at the overwhelming familiarity. And breathe in. We go into a twist with deep bent knees, supposedly mimicking sitting on a chair. I always choose a high chair. Whilst with a prayer to the chest, we collectively, like yogic soldiers in unison, turn towards the side of the room. I'm clumsy and lack the required grace, and I'm still a bit bloated from the dance act, but today I don't really care. Surely now is my time to take a glimpse, but also... I don't want to be disappointed when I see that it is not you because I know it's not you. Of course it's not you. But for the next 35 minutes, there's some earth-bending, universe-shattering-into-a-million-diamond-freckles fact that it is you. I look at the clock. 30 minutes. I have 30 minutes with you. And breathe out. We bend our ways into trees and dogs that are downward and find absurd positions that are called camel and frog. I choose not to look at you for that one. And happy baby, again, not going to look at you for that one. You are surprisingly good at yoga. Had you ever done yoga? everything about this is terrifyingly uncanny, even down to the clothes you are wearing, the mishmash of an outfit that doesn't belong together in a yoga class, that is from a different time a different decade even that is ill-fitting on this shape this gloriously huge shape of a human whose back and whose hair and whose nose I know as he perfectly makes his way into a giant sturdy towering tree. My tree is wonky and falls quickly. The lights make their glorious and slow descent back to a darkness as we collectively move our way into a shavasana, or dead man's pose. My mind is battling the words dead man's pose, which prods at the grief that hides in the depths of my rib cage and lives in the forever lump that formed in my throat years ago. Some element of you has made its way into this room and I want to grasp at it, keep it. This colourless grief colours the space a neon violet and I think of your shoes under a bed and a nest of grey sandy hair, my thumbs that are your thumbs, two tight t-shirts and two tight shorts, legs that are tree trunks and skin that is dry and a tooth that is pink and a smile that is years wide and sparkly blue icy blue eyes that have seen lots of the world at too young an age and of a landscape that means childhood that means hard work and Boredom and dreaming and of coal and glass and iron and canalways and locks and awam-yabab and of Thursday night drop-offs at the picture house and Saturday night pickups at the waterfront of weekend trips to Merry Hill to Friday night curries of forever waiting in a car on a passenger seat, running late, always late and clutching a bag of dance shoes, listening to It's My Party and I'll Cry If I Want To or Bohemian Rhapsody on repeat and the red Volkswagen car built like a square that is as much you as it is home. I miss home. I think of cars and of horses and of the baggies and of secret McDonald's after the baggies and the claw of two fingers and a thumb that wanted a chip or vibe, and of summer holidays to France and of vineyards where you believed God was as you stood on the top of a day's drive away mountain, the sun setting and your arms, your head raised towards the splendour of what was right in front of you, of a too young me, of an us, right here, right now or right there, right then, depending on which side of the air you're on breathing in and breathing out I am silently the loudest person in this room the disapproving yoga teacher winds her way through the many zen bodies of this North London community centre and wafts patchouli over our heads and in front of our faces and over our chakras and I start to feel a sensation of calm calm I feel drifty and floaty and less like a human, a messy human. I feel like I want to stay here forever or fall asleep. And I blissfully forget where I am when the teacher who doesn't like lateness breaks the moment by quoting some Rilke. No feeling is final. And we make a collective um. And it ends. I make a slow gathering of my socks that go back on my ice-cold feet that look like yours and a slow roll of my glittering mat as I wait for you to pass so I can see that, of course, it really is not you. And the strong profile of a nose is just a different nose on a different human who holds the same shape but different, the same back but different, the same sort of clothes but different, And I gently walk to the bench where the other calm yogic soldiers are sat, collecting their shoes, quietly checking their phones, all smiling with serenity, quietly thanking the yoga teacher with exhales, enjoying last sips from environmentally friendly water bottles, putting on helmets, busying themselves to leave. I smile too, and I calmly collect my shoes, silently check my phone, gently take a sip from my water bottle. Put on my bike helmet, thank the teacher in a relieving exhale, and I leave. I unlock my bike from the railings and steadily cycle off into the cold North London night, with the world still turning crookedly, thinking about how no feeling is final. The following day, in an overpriced gift shop, I'm looking for a book of Rilke because, well... Maybe that will change my life. But my mind magpies and I find my claws on a necklace and a gold moon pendant necklace because I saw a woman on Instagram doing a demo on how to stack gold necklaces. It feels necessary. I give the pendant, the moon-shaped pendant, to the cashier who stands over it smiling, a smile as wide as a valley somewhere in France with a sparkle in her eyes, her icy blue eyes, as she tells me she was thinking of buying the same thing because it's where she'd put her father in the moon, her late father, so she could talk to him. And I wanted to cry. I wonder how overcrowded the moon must be, and whether no feeling really is final, and when I'll stop looking for you everywhere.
0: Hi, Esther. Hello. Thank you for that story. Beautiful story. We are beginning these debrief interviews by asking each of our writers to talk about the provocation that we gave you. We asked you to articulate something that you'd never told anyone Mm. before and that could take myriad forms. Can you talk about your initial response to that provocation and how you landed on telling this particular story?
1: I feel like I had a real journey with it because the idea of something that's never told... In my mind, I was like, well, there's a reason that I've never told certain things. (laughs) And so I was thinking of, like, secrets. And I initially, I think because we'd had a conversation way back when, which landed on all the possible different versions of myself as a female and what that means. And I think because I started thinking about, uh, like, I think, like, maybe paths I hadn't taken or uh, particular women that I'd met that I felt really... Um, enamoured by or inspired by and I did start writing that and then I think a lot of that actually led to I think I was thinking about a before and an after which was a before the loss of my dad a parent and and how that actually does change you as a person and I think maybe like regardless of gender even but I think also there is a specific father-daughter kind of relationship And how people mould you into, parents mould you or caregivers mould you as people. And I just started thinking about grief and as I was thinking about it I went to a yoga class and kind of was thinking of that idea of seeing someone who you haven't seen for such a long time in a place or a position where you can't really do anything about it and actually how these people... And I don't think it solely has to be to do with someone that you've lost. It could be grieving any 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 person or anything that you've lost. Just how you're how that feels in your body, how that feels in your mind, in your heart. And I did actually have a conversation with a shopkeeper who we for some for whatever reason we had this really open conversation about. She told me this beautiful story that she'd that's true that you know she found this moon pendant and she. Uh, She wanted to buy it because she put her dad in the moon and that then opened a big conversation between uh, grief between the two of us and being open about it and I think grief is something that I I find tricky to talk about and I find the specifics of it tricky to talk about for so many different reasons and so I kind of thought grief is something that is never told perhaps. So that's how it took that form and it I just it just felt like the most obvious thing for me to write. It, it informed my life, really.
0: It's so funny actually thinking back to that first draft and how representative that draft and its form is of how we write and talk about grief mm-hmm. in the sense that it was like tucked into the recesses of the story yeah. and the redrafting process was about like giving it space yeah. to like actually exist. And we don't have to talk about personally why Mm. grief is difficult to talk about, but I'd love to touch on why you think collectively Mm. as a society, we don't necessarily talk about grief that much or how it operates or how it continues to exist long past the point at which it happens. Why do you think that is? You use the word self-indulgent, which I don't think this is, but it is something that comes up a lot when talking about grief.
1: Yeah, that that's so interesting, because I think actually that's, you know, one of the reasons why the many drafts of this, I think I definitely message you being like, this feels really indulgent. And actually, then leading on to that thought of why does it feel indulgent? Because this is a truth, and it is a fact, and it is a fact that will happen to all of us. And I wonder if it's to do with sadness and showing an emotion that is uncomfortable and we're taught maybe not to sit in that uncomfortableness nor at least show it. And also I don't know whether this is a British thing culturally, <laughs> but it feels like you should have like an allotted amount of time to be sad. <laughs> you lose someone and there is a allotted amount of time and then you should be okay. So I, you know, I was 19 when I lost my dad and that's that was a long time ago now and soon it's coming up to it being that I would have known him less than the amount of time that I've been alive if that sentence makes sense which is such a strange thing to think of and yet it still affects me and it will always affect me and I think I think it's the idea that other people will think your grief is indulgent but we should be able to express it and it's such it's such an indescribable thing really because it affects people in different ways. And also it has, it comes out in different forms. It's got its own different characters within it, within that word.
0: Yeah, you're so right about that allotted time, Mm -hmm. as if like after a year, if you keep talking about it and people start to like roll their eyes or yeah. not quite take it seriously and actually what i loved about this story was you talk about the colourless grief and how it colours the space and i think mm. that's a really great way of describing it because for other people it could be a completely different colour mm. for you in this moment it's a neon violet but you mm. know in another day it could be a different colour or a different shade totally and i think it's because what i found
1: so refreshing and lovely about this conversation with this woman in the shop who i don't know at all it just was that kind of release of a conversation of something that we have in common but also our, how our approaches to it are different and also that has to be respected and we all look at things differently and certain things will trigger something at specific times or specific moments. And and I feel like there was, there's obviously a reason for that. And it's to do with the amount of love that you had for a person. I think it's also to do with growth, things dying to then kind of rebirth something or understand something or... Yeah, it's complicated. And so I think
0: because it's complicated, we probably don't like to talk about it. I think I've heard it be described as grief is love in another form. Mm -hmm. And it's just, you know, it's what pours out because you have nowhere to put that love anymore. But in a way, if you can see it, as like a positive thing. You spoke there about the conversation with the shopkeeper being a release. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering whether reading this aloud and the experience of writing it provided a form of release as well. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Absolutely.
1: And actually, reading it aloud was I found very hard. I actually found it really emotional to kind of engage with it. And even then, in that, I felt embarrassed by by that, which is silly because I wrote it, and it should be <laughs> it should be like fine to kind of express yourself in in that way. Yeah. It's it has been a release. It's been cathartic, and it is interesting because I think our initial instinct is to hide away from stuff, to not deal with kind of those feelings or things. Whereas actually, I think, I think because what I've learned is, is that grief, it, it, like it is with you forever. And just to look at it and really examine it gives you a greater understanding, I think, of yourself, of that relationship, of then therefore your relationship with other people, your relationship to life, to love and... um and also because I ended up then talking about like home and like the landscape of which I'm from and I haven't lived there in such a long time and I was just like, oh my God, I, I really miss that. I actually really miss what has made, made up me. Yeah, and I think in that sense that also felt indulgent but then, you know, can I swear, like fuck it. <laughs> you know, that's that is... Yeah, that's my life and like where I've come from, and and also the journey that I've been on has involved losing a parent, and that has also informed me, as it does everyone um, who's experienced that, no matter what age. I think
0: if it helps, that was one of my favourite parts. It was so vivid and so specific. You could just, I could envisage you in that place and in that environment. And obviously, a lot of people will know you best as an actor and a performer. Mm-hmm. And less so as a writer, I'm wondering, you know, whether this gave you access to a different side of yourself, a different mm. set of emotions, you know, what the actual act of writing the story gave you. It's about some kind of autonomy, I think,
1: because it's solely from my, my heart and my brain. And also, you know, writing it meant also that I knew how to perform it in a way. I kind of knew what rhythm I wanted from it. And so actually they worked the acting brain and kind of the writing brain kind of really, you know, worked together and that was really helpful. But um, I just, I really, I really enjoyed it. And when I got asked to do it, I mean, I was a bit terrified, but I always think you should do the things that you're scared of. And also it's just that thing of letting it go. Like it's, it's really vulnerable, like putting your, your work out there or the things that are hidden in you that you've never told. It's really really vulnerable making but also incredibly thrilling then to be like okay (laughs) there you go world have a peep
0: (laughs) well thank you so much for giving us access to your heart and your brain just a slice of it and thank you so much for sharing this story thank you loved it pleasure this episode of never told was produced by me nicole davis our executive producer is sarah brocklehurst our production assistant and assistant story editor is Amy Yeo. Our sound designer and mixer is Tom Wally. Our artwork is designed by Beth Norris. That's our show for today, and we'll be returning next week with a brand new story from Zing Seng. Listen to Never Told on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.